Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is part two of our chat with Michael Pettis. And we are going to jump right into this, but I really encourage you to listen to part one, which came out right before this episode. It is necessary uh, to understand some of the economic mechanisms that we're going to be discussing in the next 30 minutes or so. So, Matt Klein, my colleague from Alphaville, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Cardiff. And, of course, we are here with Michael Pettis. Michael, here's how I thought we would do this uh, 30 minutes, all right? We're going to give you a break to start, and I'm going to ask Matt to bring us up to speed on the Chinese economy, okay, right? just to right. give us a little bit of a breakdown. So, Matt, you recently wrote this post that essentially explained what was happening in the years up to the end of 2015, all right, which was a time when there were a lot of really gloomy predictions about what would happen to the Chinese economy in 2016. Those predictions have not yet played out, uh, but why don't you just give us sort of a sense of what's been going on in the last five years or so? Sure. So I'm going to start the clock basically right after the financial crisis, where China, unlike many other countries, really goes gung-ho on the idea of reflationary stimulus. And the way they choose to do that is by having the government-controlled big banks lend to state-owned enterprises that then go on a really big investment spending you call it a binge, you call it a bonanza, whatever it is. You there was up, a lot of it. There was a lot of it, right? You get Some of it was clearly excess capacity and things like steel. Maybe get airports in places you shouldn't have. But there was also spending on things that maybe people will look down the line and say it was useful. But there was a lot of it. And in that period from, say, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, you have a lot of people outside of China who react to that and think – that is going to be a baseline for the foreseeable future, both in terms of the growth rate of Chinese uh, GDP and in particular the growth of Chinese demand for raw materials. Because in order to do all the spending, you need a lot of coal, you need a lot of iron, you need a lot of copper. And that turned out not to be right. So basically you get to 2011 or so, and China's begun switching gears for a variety of reasons. And you start seeing the prices of these industrial commodities. They've all, they all peak sometime around sort of the first half of 2011. And there's a very long and, for some places, very painful adjustment as China begins to retrench. And the growth rate of China's GDP, if you take the official numbers at face value, it basically halves uh, between then and the next few years. The prices of things like iron ore and coal and stuff, they fall by well over half. Specifically um, because Chinese demand for these goods that's has right. started to fall quite right. precipitously. So, if, I mean, another way of looking at it— and China used to consume 63%, right. which no right. country in history has done. They're by far the biggest consumer, and I, I believe if you look at, say, like since 2000, I think all of the extra consumption or more than all of it came from China. So, I mean, the shifts in their behavior really do drive these things. I have a friend who, who does commodities research at a hedge fund, and he goes to China, seems like, all the time to do, you know, check on— because that's, that's what drives these things. Uh, so you have— it spill over in a variety of ways. So places like South Africa, which export a lot of raw materials. Australia is another big one. They, they really see these big shifts. One way of seeing it that is one of my sort of personal favorites is the exchange rate between 
uh, the New Zealand dollar and the Australian dollar. They both export a lot to China, very similar economic models, but New Zealand is based on milk and meat, and Australia is dirt and rocks. And so you have this big shift starting around 2011, 2012, where there's like a 25% move in the relative value of their exchange rates because I think in reaction to this shift in the Chinese government's priorities from building steel capacity to trying to, at the margin, improve the welfare of households and getting them to eat better. Then you get to a period where you could say maybe this went too far or, or what have you, starting around 2015, 2014. There's a lot of other things going on in this period as well in terms of uh, the consolidation of political power under Xi Jinping and going after perceived threats in terms of corruption and so forth. Uh, that leads to a lot of capital outflows from the private sector in China, which hadn't really been as much phenomenon going up to that point. Nervousness that uh, their money will be confiscated. Is that what you're talking about? That could be. I mean, that's certainly, I think, one contributing factor. You know, some people say it's more a function of China liberalizing um, because they actually want to give more opportunities for investment for their citizens when up until then you basically only had the domestic property market or bank accounts. So the mix between those two things is different. But like there, there clearly is a situation in China where people are relatively underinvested in foreign assets. So, you, you know, some of that you could say is sort of a legitimate outflow versus a fearful outflow. But I think there's clearly a mix of both. Uh, but whatever the reason, there was suddenly huge outflows. And the government's initial response was to tighten domestic monetary policy to offset that. That didn't fully work. And so then the next response was maybe, well, what if you let the currency actually drop when it hadn't really done that before? Just to, to clarify, when you say tighten monetary policy, you mean raise interest rates to make China more attractive for the money already there so that not as much of it would flow out. Right. Okay. That's correct. And you have the current – this was in August of 2015 um, when the, they they have the currency – it wasn't even by that much. I think it was like a 2%. But – relative to the perception of it being something that was very tightly managed and completely under the central government's control. It spooked a lot of people, and then you start getting into a conversation of, oh, we're going to have a global recession. And by the time you get to the end of 2015, the shift in Chinese behavior in terms of what it had done to commodity prices and what that in turn had done to credit conditions because a lot of emerging market countries had depended upon Chinese demand for commodities to boost their own economies. Then you have things like what was going on with oil in terms of U.S. credit conditions. There's a whole lot of things happening all at once. You get to the beginning of 2016, and there are a lot of people who are saying, we might actually have some kind of global recession risk. And when I say recession, I don't necessarily mean literally the GDP is going to be falling, but there's, I think, a reasonable definition that I've heard, which is you have growth of the global economy being you know, two percentage points or more uh, slower than sort of what its normal trend would be. And I think that certainly could have been something that was in the cards given what, at least given what the market pricing was of commodity prices and, and credit spreads and what was going on with stock markets. That didn't happen. And so a lot of people now are like, oh, well, clearly this is just overdone. Markets were silly. But I think that actually that is sort of, you know, too sanguine. I think what makes more sense is to look at actually that there was a big shift in Chinese policymaking in 2016 that essentially after a year or so of trying to restrain growth and what they call total social financing or credit growth was really being cut back, they decided to completely reverse course. And you see an incredibly rapid increase in credit growth. And that led to higher prices for commodities, which flowed through to lower credit spreads. It led to pickup in Chinese demand. That also helped along with other things that they did to curtail the net capital outflows, which supported the currency. And now you're in a situation where people have 
sort of weirdly forgotten about what what was going on just a year and a half ago. And the post that, that I wrote about that you mentioned at the beginning was based on a, a research note that I saw that I think illustrated this beautifully, which was just a chart of Chinese inventory accumulation in renminbi terms. And it was a chart that ba- it started in 2011 and basically was at a very, very high level. I think it was something like a trillion renminbi of inventory accumulation on an annual basis. And it was sort of slowly trending downward until you get to 2013, 2014. It sharply falls when you get to 2015, 2016, the point that you actually have net inventory liquidation. So by 2016, it's something like they were selling 200 billion renminbi a year worth of inventories, which is so cumulatively a 1.2 trillion shift over those few years. And then what was really remarkable is that by the time you get to, I think, May 2017, the latest data they had, they were back to accumulating a trillion renminbi worth of inventory. So you have a swing of something like 1.2 trillion renminbi in the course of a year, back to where it was in 2011. You know, there are a lot of ways to represent this policy shift. I think that very clearly illustrates what changed, and I think it explains a lot of what we saw with, with commodity prices and so forth. Sort of the open-ended question is, you know, can they keep doing that? Because presumably all you have to do is lower that rate of inventory accumulation and that impulse that was helping commodities earlier in the year or last year goes away. So this sort of an open question of, you know, can they sustain this? Do they want to sustain this? Uh, I mean, Michael certainly read a lot about, you know, Chinese government's investment policies and, and you know, how it's been too much and unproductive. So I, I think that that leads some interesting questions to the future. But that's sort of, I think, the basic narrative that I would give of the past, you know, sort of five, six years. Yeah, Michael, uh, by the contours of the conversation that we had in part one, when China was ramping up its current account surplus, it effectively amounted to a big transfer of resources from the household sector to the corporate sector, which also, by the way, has a lot of overlap with the state sector, obviously. Mostly through the interest rate. Mostly through the interest rate mechanism. And because of that, you were in a situation where these companies, right, could produce things, but because they were being subsidized, right, effectively they could run a loss and they could basically do it forever, right? Not forever, but for as long as these mechanisms were in place. And the extension of that, as you've written, is that what matters for China now as it has tried to rebalance and shift resources back to the household sector is not overall GDP growth, but rather household income as a share of GDP growth. And by the narrative that Matt just gave us, it sounds like they were trying to rebalance for a few years, and then last year or early last year or at the end of 2015, they changed their minds and went back to doing things the way uh, they were doing them before. Before I answer that, can I talk a little bit about what happened with the contraction in China's current account surplus? Because the savings investment framework, which you can use or not use, uh, uh, depending on whether it's useful, the savings investment framework makes it very easy to understand that. Before the crisis, China was running a current account surplus of what, like 10% of GDP, something absurd. Because of the crisis, that contracted to 3%, not because of anything that happened in China, but because of the crisis abroad. Uh, Foreigners could simply no longer purchase uh, the same amount of Chinese goods. Now, if the current account surplus contracts from 10% to 3%, by definition, the excess of investment over savings also contracted from 10% of GDP to 3% of GDP. Now, how does that contraction occur? There are two ways it can occur, or some combination. One is with an increase in investment, and the other is with a reduction in savings, right? By definition. 
The right way, the best way, would have been a reduction in savings. In fact, savings actually went up. But how do you reduce savings? There's two ways. One way you reduce savings is massive transfers of wealth very quickly from the state sector to the household sector so that the households are much richer and you hope they immediately begin spending that, that, that greater wealth. Now, that's politically impossible to do quickly. It's difficult to do in the best of cases, but to do it quickly, it's impossible. So there's the other way savings can go down, and that's very simple. Fire all the workers. That brings the savings rate down. China couldn't do, Beijing couldn't do the first quickly enough, and clearly it didn't want to do the second. So it had to increase investment. It had no choice. If it did not increase investment, unemployment would have surged. And that explains the Chinese reaction to the 2009-2010 crisis. It's a very simple trade-off between unemployment and uh, higher investment, even though they knew they didn't need to increase investment. Okay. This is uh, where I want to start talking about whether or not the path ahead for China resembles uh, the path for Japan post-1990, more or less. This is a parallel that I think you've written about in the past as well. But because of all of these kind of astonishing events that have happened in China in the last two years especially, it's a narrative that I think is now gaining increasing attention. So tell us what the similarities might be and maybe even a few of the differences that could actually alter the path for China. The similarities are are, 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 are pretty substantial. The differences are either irrelevant. A lot of people will tell you Japan is much richer than China. That has nothing to do with how the economy rebalances. Where there are differences between Japan and China is that the uh, Japanese imbalances were pretty bad and the increase in debt was quite rapid. But the imbalances in China are much worse, perhaps the worst we've ever seen. And the increase in debt is the most rapid we've seen. So the differences are not good ones. But let me step back and be as logical as possible here. You have these unbalanced economies, including the U.S. in the 1920s, many of the same imbalances, and they have to rebalance. And rebalancing, by definition, means the household share of income must go up. Now, in principle, there are three ways you can do it. One way is what China said it was going to do, which no country in history has done, and it's, I think, impossible to do, and that is... Keep uh, GDP growing at the same rate with a surge in household income. So for many years, GDP was growing at 10 and household income was growing at 7. Somehow we were going to keep GDP growth at 10 or maybe 9 and household income would grow at 12 or 13. Now, no country's ever done that in history and it's not clear what the mechanism is that, that does that. I think we can reject that. The two other models, the two other ways of doing so, is the way the U.S. rebalanced in the 1930s. From 1930 to 1933, American GDP was down negative, something like 35%, and household income was down roughly half that. So the U.S. rebalanced. Very painful, uh, very brutal, very quick, but it rebalanced. The other way we've seen rebalancings take place is the Japanese way. From 1990 until the next 20, 25 years, uh, GDP grew at half a percent. Household income grew at roughly one and a half percent. So Japan rebalanced. Still outpaced GDP growth. Yes. Uh, household consumption in Japan went from 52% of GDP to 57 It wasn't a major rebalancing. It was a partial rebalancing. But basically, those are the two ways history gives us. And my guess is that in China, we're either going to see 
a crisis, which I think is very unlikely. I've always thought that was unlikely. 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 I'll explain why, but banking crises are not caused by insolvencies. So we will either get that. It's a rising possibility, but I I still think it's very unlikely. Or we'll get a Japanese-style rebalancing, which in the absolute best case in China that I can think of would be maybe 3% GDP growth and 4.5% household income growth, which would be pretty good. The problem is a political problem, and that is that after 30 years in which households did well, but, but they grew more slowly than GDP, so someone did really well, we now must move to a system where GDP growth slows significantly and household income growth doesn't. So their share grows, somebody's share must contract. And we know who somebody is. It's the elite and the uh, local and provincial governments, which is why it's politically so difficult. But logically, those are the three ways you rebalance. And one way has never been done. So we are probably looking at, uh, at the other two ways. Okay. In a second, Michael, I'm going to ask you about why you think uh, that a financial crisis is unlikely, uh, despite everything you just said. But first, Matt, uh, you like writing about Japan. And I think what Michael just said is sort of an underappreciated story. When people talk about what's happened in Japan for the last two and a half decades, usually it's one of a couple of lost decades, right? Usually it's one of flat real growth, essentially, right? But from what Michael's saying, uh, this rebalancing was necessary. And actually, for domestic Japanese households, it hasn't been as bad as the numbers might indicate. That's right. I mean, part of the mistakes that a lot of people make when they talk about Japan is either they're comparing it to a baseline that was in the sort of bubble in the 1980s, or they forget to divide by the population, which you've had a much slower population growth in Japan than in the, than in the West. Or they look at total GDP as opposed to, I think, as a more relevant measure of living standards, which is household consumption. So if you actually look at household consumption per person adjusted for changes in prices in Japan against uh, all the major Western countries, what you see is they've actually done reasonably well since 1990. They haven't haven't done the absolute best, but they've actually done basically in sort of the top third uh, of all countries. Uh, Only the U.S., the U.K., and Sweden have consistently since 1990 outperformed Japan on a per capita basis over that long period. And I don't know enough about Sweden, quite frankly, but in the case of the U.S. and the U.K., people, it's not clear how sustainable that is going forward given uh, what we've already seen in terms of the post-crisis change in the consumption path. Whereas Japan, it's been remarkably stable. Part of that admittedly has come from a big drop in the Japanese saving household savings rate uh, from like 12% to essentially 0%. So again, how sustainable that is, is is a different question. But I think the sort of common narrative of the lost decade, you look at compared to uh, the U.S. and Europe, it's really unfair, I think. Michael, uh, you wrote recently in the Wall Street Journal that a few years ago, everybody thought that China was going to have a financial crisis. You said that wasn't the case. You recently wrote that now everybody's saying that China might even be able to manage 6 or 7% GDP growth into the future for the next, you know, 10, 15 years. And you said that's wrong also. Let's take the first bit, though. Why is it that China will be able to avoid a financial crisis despite this necessary and very difficult rebalancing for its private sector, its corporate sector? A financial crisis or a debt crisis or a banking crisis is, is effectively a kind of bank run. And you don't get bank runs because the banks are insolvent. When I started my career, I worked for one of the nine 
of the top 10 American banks that were insolvent. In other words, every one of the top 10 American <laughs> banks except J.P. Morgan was insolvent. But you didn't get bank runs, you didn't have a crisis because there was a credible guarantee of the deposits by the, uh, by the central government. And that's really key. Crises are caused by sudden stops, what, are, what economists refer to as sudden stops. And that is when you have a significant mismatch between assets and liabilities and some event prevents you from rolling over the liabilities, that's when you have a crisis. Now, if you look at the Chinese balance sheets, they look terrible, particularly the small banks. Not only do they have uh, really awful assets, but their funding base is terrible. It's all purchased money, very little retail deposits. So you would think uh, with these kind of balance sheets, China should have a crisis. But as long as the banking system is closed and most of the money remains within the banking system and the regulators are credible, then that, that mismatch disappears because the liabilities can easily be restructured by the, uh, by the uh, regulators. They can force banks to lend among themselves if there's a run on the bank. So to me, as long as the regulators are credible, you're not going to get a sudden stop. And credibility is still quite high. They've taken some steps to undermine it, but it's still quite high. And without that, I don't see how you can have a run on the banks. It's something worth keeping an eye on, but it's unlikely. Yeah, our colleagues at the FT recently produced this statistic, which is that two-thirds of Chinese corporate debt is owed by state-owned enterprises to state-owned banks. Right. You know, just following up on that, I mean, one of the things you you mentioned, you made a point recently in one of your notes to clients that I found very interesting, which is that it's possible that a tightening of domestic Chinese monetary conditions could, you know, a deliberately introduced by the People's Bank of China could effectively shift money from these smaller, fragile banks to the larger state-owned banks that Carter was talking about, and actually, you know, whether whatever the economic merits, actually serve a political function of centralizing the control of of credit allocation. Can you elaborate more on that? This is a very political economy point of view, and that is, in the 1980s, there seemed to develop a consensus among the leadership, among Deng Xiaoping and the people around him that the uh, tremendous centralization of the economic policymaking process under Mao had been a big mistake for a country like China, a huge country with an enormous amount of variety. So there was a very explicit plan to decentralize the uh, uh, decision-making, particularly economic decision-making. And uh, maybe it's because of my many years on Wall Street, but to me, the key point there is decentralizing the credit allocation process. Remember that until the reforms began, there was only one bank in China, the People's Bank, and that was run out of Beijing. Uh, during the reforms in the 1980s, uh, the big four and several other banks were created, but mostly controlled by Beijing. Even as late as the late 1990s, something like 90% of all lending occurred through the big four banks. But there was a, a, a real goal in decentralizing that process, and we saw the emergence of a huge number of local banks. In fact, China has way too many banks, to the point now where I think the big four account for only 40% of total lending. There, a, a portion of the rest is by Beijing-controlled banks, but much of that is, uh, is by local banks. So we saw this process where the credit allocation process was decentralized significantly. And to me, that's the heart of the decentralization of the whole uh, economic policymaking process. But that's changed. And that's changed because 
the reforms that President Xi must implement, and I think Beijing, I think there's a, a, a consensus on this now, they know what the reforms are. And the reforms basically involve, once you strip away all of the noise, a transfer of wealth from local governments, from governments, but because of political centralization, it'll be local governments to the household sector. That's the only way to increase consumption and reduce savings. So can they do this? Historically, the type of reforms that the uh, that Beijing has to implement are so difficult. Very few countries have been able to do this successfully without a political crisis. There are exceptions. And the exceptions tend to be democracies, and the classic case could be the United States in the 1930s, where we saw real decentralization of wealth, or highly centralized autocracies. And the classic case could be China itself in the 1980s. We forget how ferociously opposed the Communist Party elite were to many of Deng Xiaoping's policies. But power was very centralized then, so he was able to implement them with difficulty, but he implemented them. So if you're going to advise the president on the implementation of these reforms, you'll probably say, based on the historical precedents, either you must become a democracy within three years or you must re-centralize power. I think it's pretty clear what the, what the possible route is. Um, and they've been doing that since 2011, 2012. The main purpose of the anti-corruption campaign is widely perceived to be within China as one of re-centralizing power into Beijing. Now, again, wearing my uh, banker's hat, that means, among other things, you want to re-centralize the credit allocation process. So what I'm expecting to see, what I've been uh, speaking to my students about for a couple of years, is that one of the uh, indications that the president is being successful in his attempts to implement the necessary reforms is we should start to see a change in the credit allocation away from the local governments back towards Beijing. And there are many ways this can happen. So, for example, we all know there's too many banks in China and there's going to be a lot of mergers. The big question is, do you have all of these local banks merged into the big Beijing banks, so you create these huge zombies but but run by Beijing, or do they merge among themselves and create alternatives to the Beijing banks? If, If my model is right, it's going to be the former. That's what the president will have to do. And what I suggested is interest rates, interbank interest rates have been extremely high recently. And you know how the interbank lending works in China. It's basically the big four lend to the local provincial and, and, uh, and uh, local banks because of their huge uh, retail uh, uh, branch system. So what happens if you raise the interbank rate? Well, if you raise the interest rates, it's a transfer of wealth from net borrowers to net lenders. Who are the net borrowers? They're the small local provincial banks. Who are the net lenders? They're the big Beijing banks. So I don't know if this was their plan. But to me, it's very consistent with this whole process of the recentralization of power. Basically, high interbank rates weaken the local banks tremendously at the expense of the big Beijing banks. And that's what I would want to see if, uh, if Xi Jinping is going to be successful. That's fascinating. But also, there was uh, something I want to focus on there, um, which is, I think, a, it's a simple but I think radical point from the standpoint of the way that monetary policy is traditionally understood, usually the mechanism seems simple enough. If interest rates are lower, then people, including households, are incentivized to borrow the money to then either spend the money or to invest it in buying a house through low mortgage rates, et cetera, et cetera, right? In China, it works a little bit differently, in part because households tend to only have access to their domestic deposits. And so- 
What ends up happening is if you keep interest rates low, but they have to save for something in the future because they don't have access to other kinds of sophisticated financial products, right? It means that their savings go up despite interest rates going down, right. right? In a country like the U.S., where people have access to, for instance, buying a house, and they have access to a pension, and they have access to stocks, things like that, right? When interest rates go down, they're incentivized to spend more money. Effectively. Right. It's exactly in the reverse. In both cases, lower interest rates will incentivize the corporate sector to borrow and save more money, right? right? But in the U.S., I guess you might say that the impact of lower rates is democratized, right? Whereas in China, it works in reverse for those two sections, which means that if you raise interest rates, households will feel like it'll be easier for them to save for their future uh, spending needs, right? Yep. And that means that effectively consumption will go up instead. This to me is uh, an intriguing uh, insight. Yeah, and it's surprising that it's so controversial because the IMF did a study and found exactly that, that as the real deposit rate goes down, consumption goes down, not up. And there, uh, I won't get into a big discussion of why, but in the U.S., if you lower interest rates, you lower the cost of consumer credit. So households consume more, it's cheaper. Yeah, and uh, mentioned credit cards in there, too. Exactly right. <laughs> and, there's, and there's very little consumer credit in China, so you don't have that effect. And then there's also the wealth effect. When American interest rates go down, typically real estate prices go up. Mm-hmm. Americans feel richer and they spend more. And the stock market goes up. Americans feel richer and they spend more. In China, the uh, real estate market works very, very differently, and it's not liquid, so there isn't a wealth effect to the same extent. And the stock market is just too small. When interest rates go down in China, the typical Chinese household feels poorer, so he saves more, he or he consumes less, which is the same thing. So it works backwards there, and that creates a lot of confusions, I think. Yeah, I agree. Matt? You know, speaking of sort of the political economy of, of financial regulation, I mean, another issue that you've been discussing and that, that I think is on people's minds is that the longtime head of the People's Bank of China is finally going to be retiring. I believe he was supposed to retire a few years ago, and he was sort of kept on for a few years, and now he's really going to be leaving. And there's some interesting discussion about who the successor might be and what that might mean for policy. I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. What are, what are your sort of general thoughts here? Well, everything is still in the rumor stage. We don't know. But if I had to bet, I would bet pretty heavily that it's the uh, it's sort of an unexpected name. Uh, the uh, the party secretary of Hubei province, who is a very interesting candidate, if it's true, because he spent most of his career in banking. But what's interesting is that he really cut his teeth on bad debt resolution. He was very heavily involved in the Gittit crisis which, remember, that's when Wang Qishan was the party secretary of, uh, of Guangdong province, so they worked very closely together then. And he was very involved in cleaning up a bank of which he was chairman, the first state-owned bank that did a foreign IPO, and he had to clean up the bad debt before the IPO. So he's a roll-up-your-sleeves-and-fix-the-bad-debt-problem your, your and, and, and guy. And in my opinion, that's probably uh, what they would want, somebody close to Wang Qishan who understands bad debt. I want to ask a very general question about the politics of trade, right? Is the U.S. getting this right vis-a-vis China, or is there something else that it should be doing? There are so many objectives. You have to define the objective first. But what I do want to suggest is that this is a really important issue for China, because uh, remember, the problem that China suffers from is very weak uh, domestic demand. That's why it must have a current account surplus. Without that, it would have to uh, uh, increase unemployment, and it doesn't want to do that. China uh, has a growth rate now of roughly 
And a lot of people ask if that's if that's real or are they lying. I don't think there's a lot of lying going on there. There may be some. But the important point to remember about GDP is that GDP isn't a measure of wealth or debt service capacity. It's a measure of economic activity. Now, if you invest in an airport that gets no airplanes, that shows up as an increase in GDP. Now, in, in, in the U.S., what would end up happening is you would have to write that investment down to zero, which would reduce the profitability of the bank or the company that did it, and so it would reduce the value-added component of GDP. So you would eliminate that bad investment from GDP. In China, you don't do that. You don't write any of it down, uh, and you're able to roll over the bad debt forever, effectively because of government guarantees. So GDP is significantly overstated by the amount of bad investment. I shouldn't say GDP is overstated. I, I should say the real wealth, the real increase in wealth is overstated by the GDP number because that includes a lot of non-productive activity. Now, what is the real growth in productive capacity and debt servicing capacity? Uh, I don't really know. I would be surprised if it was much above 1% to 2%. The huge increase in debt, and uh, we are now running at a rate of roughly every year debt has to increase by roughly 45 percentage points of GDP in order for China to hit the target, which means going from that real number, which is maybe 2%, to the target of 6.5%. The way I think about the current account surplus or the trade surplus is in debt terms. I did a rough calculation, and, it, and I calculated that for every one percentage point forced contraction in the trade surplus, contraction because of anti-trade activity abroad, the amount by which Chinese debt has to grow in order to achieve the GDP growth target goes up by one-third. So to explain what that means, if somehow you could force the Chinese trade surplus to drop uh, by three percentage points, that means instead of 45 percentage points of GDP required, that increase in debt, in order to hit the growth target, we would now need to double that, which of course is impossible. So the current account surplus is very important for China. It's a way of moderating the difficulty of the adjustment. Uh, so I think they're very concerned about that. Okay. I think that is all the time we have for part two's discussion on China. But before we let you go, Michael, uh, I want to ask uh, what you're working on now. Uh, do you have a new book in the works um, or any uh, bigger projects other than uh, what you're producing for China financial markets? Uh, I've been working for a while. Uh, things have been so busy that I'm way behind schedule. On a, on a book in which I uh, – one of my big complaints about economics is that economists don't understand debt the way people in finance do. Uh, and what I want to do is sort of create an equivalent of corporate finance, uh, looking at debt, financial distress costs, et cetera, at the sovereign level. So that's my really big project. But given all the talk about trade, uh, we may do a, a, a quick interruption and do a book on trade, on how trade works. Okay. Who's we? Is this a joint project or is this uh, uh, yeah, uh, Yes, it's with an academic from the uh, University of Chicago. We haven't really agreed to go public, so I'm not really sure I'm allowed to say his okay. name. But okay. he's uh, much more interesting than I am, so people are going to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Pettis, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for Thank coming you. back on the show. And that is the end of our chat with Michael Pettis. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. 
That is country code plus one because we are based in the U.S. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. And at ft.com forward slash alphachat, you'll find show notes for this episode and for all other prior episodes. Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, is where you can go and leave us a rating or a review. We really do appreciate those. We see all of them, and they're especially great because other people find the show through the reviews and ratings that you leave at Apple Podcasts. And finally, you might think that the politics of trade between the U.S. and China are complicated, but AlphaChat does that one better because we have an export tariff to make sure that we never, ever lose the amazing Amy Keene, our producer and editor. Thanks for everything, Amy. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again later this week for another episode of Alpha Chat. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.